Let's turn to, actually, we're going to start in Genesis, and we'll work our way through to get to Proverbs eventually, but we'll start in Genesis. And we're going to look at the subject of work tonight, and specifically um, about diligence of work. And um, next time, Chip will be talking about the integrity of work. Um, so let's turn to Genesis 1, and let's look at verse 26. His work was established at the very beginning, and that's what we're going to see. <clears throat> 1, 26 through 29. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the, all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. You know, the very first communication after creation of man is a commission, is a command. The very first thing he says. Man and his descends in verse 28 says uh, we are created to subdue and to rule. I think the King James says have dominion over um, and, and God, uh, of God's creation. And he says um, over, over God's creation, it created animals in verse 28 and also the plants in verse 29 four specific commissions or commands are given by God and they, they all um, entail work in some capacity. In verse 28, what do we have? It says, be fruitful and multiply. We have procreation. Verse 28, fill the earth. So not procreate, but travel. Get out there, fill the earth. And then in, in 28, it says, subdue it. And 28 also says, rule over it. And then this, this is also work. You may not see it right away, what's there, but it says, and, sh and it shall be food for you. Now, this is all work. Listen to Dr. Henry Morris, who um, wrote a lot of things on creation, but look what he, listen to what he says here about subduing, specifically subduing and ruling over God's creation. He says, this twofold commission to subdue and have dominion to conquer and rule embraces all productive, productive human activities, science, technology, research, development, theory, application, study, and practice, and so forth are various ways of expressing these two concepts of subduing and ruling. And then also listen to what he says about, um, it shall be food for you. He says, man, was, man has work to do and would need a repeated renewal of energy to continue the work. This was to be provided through the marvelous digestive system and internal energy conversion apparatus designed by God as part of man's body. Now, God could have infused energy through light or some other means of providing us energy to work, to do this. But no, he, he chose to have us work for food. And even this is before the fall. Remember, this is, this is in creation. It was to go and, and work for food so we have energy, so we can do these things of subduing and ruling the earth. So work and labor is not a curse. It's bef this was established from the very beginning. It's not a curse. 
It is not a sentence of doom and waiting for the weekend or whatever else we might be thinking of how we can get out of work and then we'll look at that. But this is, this is not a curse. Since God gave the commission to Adam and Eve, work is obedience and obedience is really worship. That's what worship is. But now let's look at what happens when sin enters the world. Look over, look, turn to Genesis 3. We have sin, um, where we have sin entering the world. Genesis 3, starting in verse, um, verse 16. It says, to the, to the woman, this is um, after they sin, and he's giving them basically the curse or the results of the sin. It says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17, then then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I've commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust, and dust you shall return. There is so much to unpack in here, but if we just focused on the aspect of work alone, consider the curse God hands down for disobedience to his direct command to not change the initial commission. He says, oh, since the fall, don't worry about work anymore. No, you continue to work. And you continue to subdue, you continue to procreate, you continue to do these things, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be pain. It's going to be work to subdue the earth. And it'll be more difficult with thorns and thistles. So what is the purpose of work? What's the purpose of work? Why did God create us to work? What would be the whole purpose of God doing this? Well, in Colossians 3, 17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, and we'll come back to this, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This would, of course, include the, what we were originally commissioned to do, and that's work. The purpose of work does not need much explanation. Our labor, our work, no matter how difficult is to be done to the glory of God, even as it says in Colossians, giving thanks to God in our work. Our work is our worship. And let's look at the, I mean, the first one there, we were looking at the, the, um, the priority or the um, primacy of our work. And now we're going to look at um, Oops, there we go. The, the pattern of our work. What is the pattern that we have that we even learned from creation? In fact, turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. This is this pattern of work that we have. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. One of the aspects of his likeness he modeled was his own work of creation. His own work of creation. Look at um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, when it gives us more detail. This is, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because it is, it is uh, in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Did God need to rest? Does God run out of energy? There was a purpose in showing an example and living an example of what it was. This demonstrates that work um, of work even crea in creation. And even and Adam and Eve's perfect, and, uh, perfect labor before the fall contained a pattern. Because what does he say in verse 3? This is God blessed it on the seventh day and set it apart for a day of rest. And that's our pattern as well. There's work and there's a pattern of rest and work and rest. And there's a pattern that was set there. And so I jumped ahead there to the purpose of work, which is the third one there. The purpose of work is that we, we work to the glory of God. And um, if you want to keep with the alliteration, those who want to keep with the P's there, the pertinency of work. But really, it's the persistence, the diligence of work. And that's what we're going to look at here. Is just turn to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. We'll start in verse 6. Proverbs 6, 6. Verse 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Now, how many of you had ant farms growing up? Oh, quite a few. I had an ant farm. Um, did you ever consider this verse when you were observing those ants? Perhaps some tied it to that. I just had it because I think I found it in the back of a cereal box, I think it was. And um, my, I had several of them. The first one, I killed them, um, probably because I wasn't taking the diligence to feed them or take care of them. Um, <laughs> but the second one flourished, and th they were absolutely fascinating in what they do. And they, no matter what you would do to them, you'd shake it up, and they would recreate the, the paths and the tunnels and go back at it, and there was no, I'm on strike, how dare you do this to me? There was no, they just turn around and keep building their nests and rebuilding things. Um, and that was, it was very fascinating. Now, how many of you seen the animated movie of Bugs Life? Of course, if you probably have kids that probably love it. And I actually like it too, but it's really a takeoff of Aesop's fable, The Grasshopper and the Ant, which is very close to what this proverb is talking about as well. While Bugs Life is a fun story, it really does poorly at giving a good example of what this is saying because they, they attribute human emotion and attributes and economy to this and it kind of messes it all up in what it's saying. But so we don't want to go to the Bugs Life for any kind of um, understanding of what the, when he's talking about go to the ant and be wise. But let's look at what, what it says here. It says they have having no chief officer or ruler. It's interesting, just because an ant colony has a, a group of ants has a queen does not mean she rules. In fact, she just sits there and births, and that's all their life is, is taking care of, protect, feed, and um, nurture the queen so she can procreate. They just service her. It seems I am always at battle here on campus with fire ants. As, the, as it comes around and every time it rains, they come up to the surface and they're everywhere, and it's a constant battle. And you really don't want to kick them because then they get underground and they come out somewhere else in five other places. So it's always a battle. But it's really interesting. If you were to mess with them and you move them, it's just immediate. They grab the eggs, they grab the food, and they're going down deeper. They move them aside. They rebuild. They don't, they don't um, 
there's no officer, there's no commander, they're not standing still and saying, now what do we do? <laughs> it's an immediate, they, they're going and fixing their, their home and they're, they're very productive in what they're doing. Nothing distracts them. The, the response is instinctive and it's diligent in this task. So if you look at this lesson that we can see from this, and there's so many different things you can look at the end and try to extract from that and stretch things, but there's some that are fairly obvious here. The lesson one is have a single-minded purpose in all of our work. We just read some verses in Colossians. A single-minded purpose, and what is our single-minded purpose in all of our work, no matter what capacity of our work? Not just work you're paid for, but labor that we have every day of getting food to whatever it might be, it's labor that we have. What is, the, what is our single-minded purpose? It's to glorify God. It's to glorify God. Lesson two, be self-disciplined in our work. Self-discipline is a loaded, a loaded term that is um, extremely powerful. You start to think about it. self, means controlling yourself. This is not to say that we don't need chiefs, officers, and bosses, but what we should not be distracted away from our tasks that at hand and what we're trying to do. Listen how Steve Lawson describes self-discipline. Self-discipline means to exercise power over oneself. It is the ability to keep oneself under control. The word indicates self-mastery over one's inner desires, thoughts, actions, and words. It is control a believer must exercise over his life. So if you think about your work and the self-discipline, you're not distracted by other things. It's a, it's a, it's a purpose, single purpose in your mind to glorify God, and your discipline is you're disciplining yourself in that focus, in that purpose. So what else does it say about the ant? It says it prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And it's very similar to Proverbs 30, 25. It says the ants are, are, are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The ants think summer in the winter, and they think winter in the summer. There, it's just a constant um, effort that they, they place forward to store away. While it appears that we could focus on planning and the necessity of planning in our work, that's not really. It's, it's looking at the character the character of the ant and their working and their planning, and, and that's the lesson for us is this character, this planning, and that's this third lesson we could say is no procrastination. <laughs> They're not gonna put off to winter what they are supposed to do at harvest in the summer and vice versa. They don't put things off. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Yes, there are priorities, but this is putting off because I don't feel like it. And the laziness is what the focus is. And yes, we have priorities and we have to forego some things to focus on something else and that's understandable. But this is saying no procrastination due to laziness or I just don't want to or putting off because I just don't feel like it. Proverbs 12, 24 says, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will put, to, um, put, to, will put you to forced labor. And the forced labor is, you know what gets down to crunch time? Uh-oh. You're now in forced labor. You don't have no, you have to put everything else aside so you can focus on just this because I know I have to get this done tomorrow. That's forced labor. It's not talking about someone with chains and saying, oh, now we're under forced labor. It's talking about you put yourself under forced labor and having to forsake other good things in order to, because you procrastinated. Proverbs, um, 
Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. We as Christians should be supremely motivated to be diligent in our work since we ultimately are serving the Lord, as we saw glorifying God in our work. If we put our hearts into our work, as this verse says in, in Colossians 3, 23, I believe we will, be, we, will, we will find it very difficult to procrastinate. It'll be very difficult to do that. So we have a lesson four here. We persevere in our work. It's very similar to, I guess, procrastination, but listen to how Webster, good old Webster defines this, is to persist in a state of enterprise and undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, and discouragement. How often are we discouraged when we feel like we're working and we're not getting where we want to be and we're discouraged, it's like, oh, I'll just give up. But to persevere in this work means in spite of obstacles, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of how the sweat of the brow that it might produce, you just got to get it done. To persevere through those things. And of course, this perseverance goes throughout our spiritual life too, right? Just to persevere through these things. The ant collects food in the seasons where the harvest is plenty and nothing appears to hinder or stop him. Um, you lay a stick across the path. I know in, in Washington, there would be these, um, Washington State, we up in the mountains, we'd find these ant hills that are just tremendous. I mean, they're, they're probably four feet high and, and they're, they go out three or four feet and it's just a constant movement of ants um, across this whole hill. And you don't want to step in them, obviously. It's a, I, I don't know what they would do. I don't want to find out. But they, they were very persistent. You would lay a stick, they would move the stick. They would, if you laid a stick across the path where they're, going to, where they're going to forage, they would build an ant bridge across this thing and they would all crawl over each other. And they just immediately, they knew what to do. But there was nothing um, that would stop them. They would persevere through anything. These are just about four obvious lessons from the ant and much more could be extracted if we observed more behaviors and, and looked at them further as it tells us to do. But interestingly, there are other lessons that can be gathered from the negative aspects of those uh, that we learn from this. Because what it says in Proverbs is, go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> learn from them and be wise. So what is the sluggard? We can learn some things from the sluggard too. In fact, there, there's, probably, there's more said on the sluggard in Proverbs than there is about the ant. The ant is mentioned twice. <laughs> sluggard is mentioned frequently. Turn to Proverbs 26 which we have a large concentration here in, in chapter 26, verse 13, starting in verse 13, uh, where it talks about the sluggard and the characteristics of a sluggard. It, it uses imagery to underscore and draw the mental picture of the ugliness of wastefulness of a sluggard, the antithesis of the ant. It says, look at, look at verse um, 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. And very similarly, in, in, in chapter 22, 13, it says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. <laughs> it's just a, a laughable image. It says, this is, uh, this is extreme excuse. Um, would be like a person saying here, I guess, there's a rattlesnake in the road. I can't come to work today. How absurd would that be? I mean, you're in a, in a car. This thing is not going to hurt you. But there's lesson five here. Don't make excuses to avoid work or even hard work. And it's so easy, I would even say insidious to, it's so easy to make excuses. 
And I, it's, it's, you think, why did I just say that? It's like, I'm making excuses for something I shouldn't be making excuses for. It's just because I'm, I'm lazy. I don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. Well, look at verse 14, the next verse there. This is, as the door turns on its hinge, so does the sluggard on his bed. <laughs> Another image. It's kind of like, okay. This is um, mocking the sluggard as one who can't find discipline to take initiative. It's like, well, is it talking about his sleeping in his bed? Well, it probably could mean that too, because there's plenty of proverbs that mention about a sluggard in his bed and he can't get out of his bed. But this is talking about his initiative. The range of his motion is limited, turning un- unproductivity, uh, unproductively like a door swinging back and forth, not getting anywhere. Nothing's happening. Just back and forth. No progress, just enough to get by, but no more. Lesson six, take initiative, exert maximum energy in your work. Let's look at verse 15. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. (laughs) So lazy he can't even feed himself. This is closely akin to a um, a friend of procrastination. A sluggard constantly fails to finish his tasks. We do this by delaying more difficult tasks. It's like, ah, this is hard. I'll do it in the morning when I'm clearer mind or when I get my 10th cup of coffee or whatever it might be. I'm not a coffee drinker, so I guess I can say that. We do this by delaying the difficult tasks, you know, the the kind of that we'd rather not do because it's hard, unpleasant. And, um, And sometimes it's, if I just leave this alone, someone else will deal with it. Someone else will pick it up and do it. Well, lesson seven. What is he saying here with the sluggard? Do hard things. Finish your task and increase productivity. I guess you can add to that. It's just increasing productivity. Always thinking, how can this be done and done better and moving forward in that. The sluggard, the sluggard um, look at verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than even men who can give a discreet, seven men who can give discreet answer, seven being the perfect number. In other words, he's getting perfect counsel. He's saying, even with the most perfect counsel, what does he do? He's wiser in his own eyes. That's a characteristic of this slugger. The slugger believes he is just smarter than anyone else, a know-it-all who rejects counsel or uh, of seven men who give dis, uh, decisive answers of counsel. Verse 12 really presses home. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? He says, there is more hope for a fool than for him. A sluggard is a fool who thinks more of himself and his ideas and his knowledge than he, re- than he really has. A sluggard is worse off than a fool the pride, this pride is shown in the disrespect and dishonor shown to authority, to your boss, to co-workers, those who give you counsel. Lesson eight, be respectful to your authority in your work because they are placed there by God. Does it mean they are the wise one that this is referring to? Not necessarily. It just means to show them respect because God has placed them there. Don't be a know-it-all, I guess you'd say. Lastly, let's look at some pitfalls. It's kind of related to these, these areas, but I'm gonna jump out of Proverbs here for a moment, but there's some pitfalls of work too. You turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 
verses 5 and 6. Ephesians 6, 5 and 6. It says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Verse 6 is, Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. The first pitfall here is our work is not for eye service. It says not for eye service. What, what, is, what is eye service? What does eye service mean? It means to, to service your employer only when they are watching. Not only is this a sluggard, but, a, but, but he's lying. Um, acting like you are accomplishing something, but you're really not. And, and you're actually stealing as well, right? The employer is paying you for hours worked and yet you really are only servicing while he's watching or at least as productive while he's watching. But worse yet, you, are, you aren't really hiding anything, right? Because you're not hiding from God. God sees not only your actions, but he knows your heart and what's going on. So the fool of this, this person, this sluggard in this case is in, in, in not using these words here, but it's saying in, in empowering to, as employers, as employees in your work, you must not work with eye service. But look at the next one, the next pitfall. It says our work is to be performed not as men pleasers. So what does it say here in men pleasers? It's, it's fairly, fairly self-explanatory. You do your work to please men well, wait a minute, isn't that why we work? Is to please your boss and what the activity that they're asking you to do? Well, yes, certainly, but what is being aimed at here is not just the work, it's the attitude of which you're doing your work. It's the attitude, it's the motivation of your heart in completing the task. Men-pleasers desire to seek praise from man rather than satisfy with pleasing God. At its root, man-pleasing man is idolatry. Idolatry is excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing other than God, our creator. And lastly, let's, let's turn to Colossians 3. I think I read this part of this before, but Colossians 3.22. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are master on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, um, do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It doesn't mean you neglect your boss and say, I don't work for you. <laughs> I work for God. Well, that is true. God has placed authority there and that is your boss. So how are we to be diligent at our work? Single-minded purpose, self-disciplined in our work. Don't procrastinate. Persevere in our work. Don't make excuses. Take initiatives and exert maximum energy in your work. Do hard things and finish the tasks at hand. Be respectful to your authority in, in work because they are placed there by God. And then be careful of the the, the heart motivations of our work or the objective of our work, and that is the pitfalls. Our work is not to be an eye service or as men pleasers. 
going to close here, let me read a quote from Anthony um, Salvaggio uh, regarding our attitude and diligence of work as Christians. Let me read this quote. When, when we work, we have the opportunity to imitate our father, the, the master worker. When we work, we have the opportunity to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, who, st who is still at work for us. And no wonder that when our work is well performed to God's glory, it should bring us pleasure. It should bring us pleasure when we do our work for his glory. Let's pray. Father, you created all things perfectly. You created us to work, to work diligently. You created us to worship you through our work. God, you have given us wisdom and instruction in our word, in your word for us um, to please you, to honor you, to obey you. Or give us the wisdom to apply these truths in our homes and in our lives. And Lord, may our hearts be splayed open to examine the deep recesses, to understand the motivations of our heart. And as we live our living examples to our families and our children, that there would be living examples of how to work that would glorify you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.